There will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please and without embarrassment. Victor Hugo Green, quote featured in the Negro Motorist Green Book, 1948 edition. Hi, I'm Maika Mulit. I'm Maritza Mulit. Welcome to the third and final episode of the One of the Good Ones Green Book Podcast. In case you didn't know, we're sisters and co-authors of One of the Good Ones, a young adult novel published by Inkyard Press, an imprint of Harlequin and HarperCollins. We like to think of One of the Good Ones as a contemporary thriller where 18-year-old Kezi Smith is killed in police custody under mysterious circumstances after attending a social justice rally. To commemorate their history buff sister's life, Happy and Jenny Smith embark on a journey using Kezi's heirloom copy of the Negro Motorist Green Book. Throughout this podcast, we've discussed the lasting impact of the Negro Motorist Green Book. In the first episode of our three-part miniseries, we explored its history. In the second episode, we delved into why something like the Green Book was so vital and existed in the first place. And now, in our third and final episode, we're going to take a look at how the Negro Motorist Green Book continues to matter, even today. We'll explore the great outdoors via modern-day green books and discover works inspired by the cultural artifact. You might even recognize one of them. So get comfortable and join us on our journey to find out if travel is fatal to prejudice. I remember when Crystal called me about the idea and said that she wanted to create just a website that had listings of safe spaces based in like conservation and outdoor spaces, but then all of the other places people would need to visit along the way to get to these spaces, just like the original Green Book. You know, she told me she had this idea, asked me if I thought it was a good one. I was like, that is an amazing idea. You are a genius. That's Parker McMullen Bushman, one of the co-founders of Inclusive Journeys, a company that works to identify safe and welcoming spaces for all. And once we started chatting, my wheels started going and I was like, I really think this could be so much bigger. I think that rather than just listing sites, that we could really bring it into the 21st century and create a crowdsourced website of spaces and that we would let the communities that use those spaces be the ones to give feedback. And, you know, people can go and list, like, did I feel safe? Did I feel celebrated? Did I feel welcome in this space? And then I could go on and see other people who are like me, have my same identity profile and what they had to say about certain spaces. And we also want to provide them with resources. We are looking to create a more inclusive community, a more inclusive society. So this will provide businesses with resources so that they can make changes, like big structural institutional changes to make their businesses more inclusive. We really feel like we've taken that original idea 
of listing safe spaces so that Black folks could travel and have expanded it to be very intersectional and to provide real-time data, which would have been a little hard to do back then. But now we have the technology to provide like real-time data so people can see what businesses they want to go and give their money to. We asked Crystal Egley, the other co-founder of Inclusive Journeys, what it's been like creating their Green Book-inspired project. She had this to say. So right now, our web team is three Black guys and a Black woman, and our lawyers are three Black women. And the difference of working with people who don't question, people who don't second guess, people who really understand what this work is for, and they just get it. Like when I say, you know how you get followed around in a store? They're like, yeah. I don't have to like be like, okay, well, let me explain to you like the history of the black diaspora, you know, like they're just like, yep. And I'm like, oh, I was going to, I had a whole thing. Okay. (laughs) I'm just so used to working in white spaces that like the difference in a meeting or conversation, not having to brace myself for microaggressions, not having to bring the 150% I'm used to having to bring, like my 100% is okay. My 100% is okay. Oh my gosh, I'm going to cry saying that. My 100% is enough, you guys. But like, for real, like it feels so different. It feels so different. And I am not going to trade this feeling for anything. I'm not like, I, I was talking to my husband who's white. I was like, is this how you feel in like every meeting? And he's like, yep. <laughs> he's like, pretty much that's. That's called just getting respect, I guess. And I was like, this is amazing. I just, I mean, it is so different. Like, I love a white guy, you know, but like something special about having a team of people who get you, get what you're working for, get the why without having the over explanation, you know? I love that Crystal and Parker created inclusive journeys, especially when you consider how the Green Book allowed Black families to experience this country and its public spaces in a way that would have been nearly impossible before. The Green Book also coincided with the automotive revolution, when cars became more widely available to Americans around the mid-1920s. It ushered in the era of the Great American Road Trip, and we got really fun songs like... And for this reason, we wanted to chat with someone who used the Negro Motorist Green Book to set out on the open road. So the Blackest Road Trip ever kind of sprung from a number of things. I got my master's in screenwriting from the UCLA Film School. As a result, I am the most critical human being when it comes to films. And I just could not stand the Green Book. Uh, It was kind of like the most ahistorical movie in centering the driver versus the experience of Black people. That's Lawrence Ross, author and creator of 365 Ally, an app to help people use their privilege to support marginalized businesses. In 2017, he and Black News website, The Root, set out on the blackest road trip ever. And so 
I was looking at it and I thought to myself, you know, what would be great if I actually went and did an exploration of one particular year of the Green Book? And I was thinking, I have to drive across the country anyway. But wouldn't it be great if I was able to drive across the country by basically only following different Green Book locations? And I wouldn't look them up before I got there. I would just look for an address and see what was there. And also, one of the things that I wanted to do was to kind of dig into the history and see what I could find out about various addresses. I picked a 1957 Green Book because that's when my mother and her parents moved from Texas to California and they used the Green Book on their trip. The second part of my goal was to recreate what would be a modern day version of the Green Book, meaning that as much as possible, I was going to buy from a black business. As it turns out, only about 5% of the locations listed in the Green Book are still standing today. How was your experience trying to buy black as much as possible? I had my route going from L.A. to Virginia. When I reached a big city, I would literally just open up the book, look for, say, for example, Phoenix, and then just blindly pick a place. Like, just put my finger on a place. And I never, like, pre-looked and said, okay, this is going to be interesting and this is not going to be interesting, right? I would pick that place and then I would put in GPS and I would go to that spot. But it was difficult because, for example, there's only one station in Los Angeles that was a Black-owned gas station. What came out of that was that nothing has really fit that model. We've had a lot of directories on the internet, but they usually are typically incomplete, are very provincial, meaning that it's only about this particular city. And they really are kind of narrow because they really only kind of do a top-level restaurants, beauty salons, barbershops, the typical place where you have a lot. I was inspired by that to start work on an app. My app is called 365 Ally. And the whole idea is kind of to break down the silos. That mindset that Black people can't or aren't in these particular things, that means that you don't look for us. You have someone who creates a business in a place that you don't naturally think of as being a quote-unquote Black business or a place where Black people are, you're perpetuating the racism that undergirds this country. And we put them at a terrible disadvantage. Look at all the ways the Green Book continues to inspire people, even today. We talked in episode one about some of the reasons why there are so few Green Book spots still in existence. But this time, we wanted to dig into the history of a site that is still around. Let's visit the historic Hampton House in Miami, Florida's Brownsville neighborhood. Shout out to our hometown. Hey, Miami. 305! Miami was very successful at shielding the racism from the public. So that's why you had this powder keg moment with the 1960s riots and then the 1980 riots. That's Timothy Barber, executive director of the Black History Foundation of South Florida in Miami. Blacks in Miami did very well. Like in many other cities across the South, Blacks in Miami were very successful. The Black part of Miami, when you talk about Overtown, you talk about the Black Groves, and when you talk about Brownsville, Liberty City, these places were very successful because people bought Black, they spent Black, and they shot Black, they did everything Black because this is what was given to us. That's why you had the success of the Hampton House, which was once the Booker Terrace Motel. You had the success of the Lyric Theater, the Ritz Theater, and Miami, Overtown area being known as Miami's Little Broadway. Because of the success that Blacks were able to endure, you gave lemons, we made lemonade. When you talk about the Green Book, when you talk about this travel thing, 
what made Miami different was because it was known where blacks could go in Miami. You knew when you was coming to Miami, you knew you were going to be in Overtown. You knew you was going to be hanging out with Nat King Cole, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, because like, everybody had to live in Overtown. The Green Book allowed for blacks that didn't necessarily know much about Overtown or were coming to Overtown to understand that on the western side of the city, there was this other black enclave where Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were staying. And that was at the Booker Terrace Motel, which then became the Hampton House. How was the Negro Motorist Green Book used as a resource when Black people traveled to Miami? So the Green Book notifying people that the Hampton House was a safe place to stay, that was important because the closest you can get to the Miami airport was Brownsville area. So for those Black travelers that were in that area and could not make it to the Overtown area, there was the Hampton House. This was a place to be. There was a stop there. Also, the fact that the Hampton House was set on a major thoroughfare in Miami, which is 27th Avenue, known as University Drive. So if you take 27th Avenue, you can go far north as Jacksonville on University Drive. As Black travelers went south and was going to Key West, that was definitely a place that they can stop at to refresh themselves. Can you tell us what the Booker Terrace Motel later known as the Hampton House, was like back then? This was their place to be because they had a pool. They had entertainers there. You've seen the pictures of Muhammad Ali, known as Cassius Clay back then, with Malcolm X. You've seen the pictures of Martin Luther King in the pool, vacation. So you heard about the jazz, the jazz performances that were there. So this became that mecca. That became like that central point. The Hampton House of Brownsville is what the Lyric Theater is to Overtown, you know? It was that mecca, it was that place to be where you can live, you can work, and you can play. And that's sort of what it was about back then, economics and people growing economically, but it was also about people being able to socialize. So that became that social center in that particular neighborhood that blossomed nationally. And that's what the Hampton House served as. It served as that beacon for people to really, really come out and you want to dress up, you could dress up other than going to church, you know. You, you know, it was just that place to be. They had the beauty contest there and different things. So it just was that anchor for that community. We've talked a little bit about the historic Hampton House in its heyday and its wonderful past. But we also know that it eventually fell into disrepair. Where did integration play a role, if at all? Black ownership. When you think about Black success, you think about the generation of Black dollars, you know, with the song Cash Rules Everything Around Me, cream get the money, dollar, dollar bill, y'all. You cannot look at historically what happened to Blacks and Black neighborhoods without understanding that it was about the Black dollar. Many people like to attribute the civil rights movement to the onslaught of demands. We applaud Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and all of our senior sages that really marched to bring attention to the plight of Blacks in America. But first, you got to understand that it's about the dollar. America moves based on money. So, you know, I like to say that, yes, we appreciate the integration, but I like to say, no, we did not appreciate the loss of the black dollars in the black neighborhoods. So when they did integration, when they passed the Civil Rights Acts, when they began to say that white America could no longer act negatively towards people based on their color, their race, their creed, that changed everything. At some point in America, whites began to understand that although I'm black and they're white, money remains the same color and that's green. 
And I think that was the impetus for this push for civil rights because what happened then is that at that point, everything that was black, that was good for black people, when they passed the Civil Rights Act, white became better. White restaurants became better than black restaurants. White hotels became better than black hotels. White apple pie became better than black apple pie. And establishments like the Hampton House that welcomed black customers long before there was a legal mandate to do so lost business. The hotel, of course, with the loss of money in business, you no longer can operate. So any business person that has some property or a business that is now draining money instead of gaining money, you eventually border it up and walk away, move to another neighborhood. And of course, with a lot of the buildings in the black neighborhoods, they became dilapidated. Uh, As you know, if you leave your house on vacation, just a week you come back, the water faucet bursts, your house is flooded. Something happens with a shut up building that don't have life, you know, life drains from it. So the building became dilapidated, you know, you got to pay the government, you know, uncertainty in life is taxes and death. So Hampton House went defunct and the building was no longer as beautiful as it was. The building that Muhammad Ali once lived in, you know, these things began to happen to this once beautiful place and it went desolate. And it was desolate for many, many, many years. Wow. Even after all that, the historic Hampton House is still standing as a testament to days past. What led to its restoration? It wasn't until people like Dr. Eamon Pinckney began to take charge and preserve and talk about the Hampton House and other pioneers were like, this was once a beautiful place. And they began to push and press and press and push for many years to find a way to, one, get it designated as a historic landmark, and two, to get the funding to restore it. Although they lost, it used to be called the Hampton House Hotel and Apartments. They lost the apartment side of it because of development, but they were able to save the actual hotel. And it stands today as a living testament to what Blacks had. Because what happens is, if that monument don't exist anymore, once everybody passed away, who's there to tell the story of it? So the only way you can tell the story of it is by not allowing them to knock it down. For Black neighborhoods, our buildings are our stories. Because when our grandparents pass away and parents pass away, we can still point to that building and say, you know what? That was a place to be. That was Black success. That was Black prominence. You know, that was a time when America did not think Black people deserved to even be in the same place as white people. And this is what we were able to accomplish then. And if we were able to accomplish it then, we're able to sustain it now. It's comforting to know that at least we have a few Green Book locations still in existence. And its legacy continues to live on in creative works, too. Yep. Books like Clean Getaway by Nick Stone and Ruth and the Green Book, co-written by Gwen Strauss and Calvin Alexander Ramsey and illustrated by Floyd Cooper. But not all tributes are created equally. Now that we have social media and we have all these other ways that marginalized people can actually speak out and push back, you're seeing a lot more force. Meet Brooke Obi award-winning film critic and author. Her work surrounding the film Green Book and in-depth interview with the family of classical musician Dr. Donald Shirley sparked a much-needed conversation around representation in Hollywood. 
with the black squares on Instagram that Hollywood celebrities and producers and writers and all that to show that black lives matter, but they don't hire black people. They don't allow black people to advance in Hollywood. They don't pay black people the same. There's just so many other things that actually would show that they value black lives. You know, they don't let black people tell black people stories. So I'm not significantly hopeful that white Hollywood is actually going to do the work that's necessary to dismantle these kinds of stories and to stop them from happening. But I do believe that there are so many talented Black creatives who now have access to tell our stories and to share our stories and to push back on the stories that are harmful to us like Green Book is. There's no valid argument for why we can't tell our stories and tell them truthfully and honestly with us at the center rather than the white people who were peripherally involved in our lives. And that's exactly what Brooke saw with Green Book. What's so interesting is like, so they reached out to me right after the Toronto International Film Festival in 2018. Green Book had just won their big award coming out of that film festival. It received all these rave reviews. It was a front runner for the Oscars, all of these things. And so when I put out my review and it was a negative review, I titled it Green Book is a poorly titled white savior film. So that went viral. Members of the family read it and they reached out to me and they said, you have no idea how right you are because I didn't, you know, I had spoken to Mahershala Ali and they were just basically saying like they had no contact with the family. Like there was no family. Essentially, I was very surprised that there was actually several members of his family who were close to him and were still alive and had no idea that this movie had been made and that they had objected to it. I was thrilled when they reached out to me just to send me a thank you email. Like, thank you for writing this review because all of these other people, they're, they're completely missing the fact that our loved one is being misrepresented. This is not who he was. This is not accurate. And so at that point, I responded back to them and asked if they would be willing to speak with me and to share their story about who the real Dr. Donald Shirley was. And so that turned into the piece, How Green Book and the Hollywood Machine Swallowed Donald Shirley Whole. And it was, I think, one of the most important interviews I think I've ever done. I spent time with his nephew, who was like a son to him. I spent time with his brother, Maurice, and his sister-in-law, and also Joseph Astor, who was the documentarian who spent 10 years filming him while they were living in the same apartments in Carnegie Hall, and just learned so much about who this man was. He did such amazing things. For him to be portrayed in that film as somebody who was ashamed of being Black and ashamed of Black culture, when in fact he was a friend of Martin Luther King Jr. He performed during uh, the March on Washington. He was very good friends with Nina Simone, very connected to Black culture. So to see him portrayed in the way that he was in that film, it was just very, very disheartening. In the film, you see Tony Lip, the white chauffeur, being given the green book by Dr. Shirley's manager. And uh, he's being instructed, use this green book because this is what's going to save Dr. Shirley's life or whatever. Um, I mean, like it's just very a general kind of a mention about the Green Book. You know, it doesn't really go into what uh, the Green Books are, how they were used, what they were for, 
any of those things. Um, and essentially what happens is Tony drives Dr. Shirley down to the South to one of the hotels that are mentioned in the Green Book as the only place where Dr. Shirley can stay as a Black man in this part of the country. And it is a rundown rat hole. It's infested. There are like people gambling. Like it just seems like so stereotypical of like, you know, hmm, what's the ghetto like? Like a, a white person's imagination. Like it just, it was really, really ridiculous. And then you see Dr. Shirley, who is so, you know, better than this and won't associate with any black people and is just like disgusted that he has to kind of be in this space. So what I actually ended up doing is I spoke to some researchers at the Schomburg Center, which is a fantastic research space for African and African-American history. And they have the largest database of green books in the country. I asked their historians, like, how accurate would that be where somebody would be going to a rat infested, rundown location from the green book? And it was essentially like Tony Lip was saying, oh, this looks so much better in the book, like suggesting that, you know, the book had false advertising. It's Myra Liriano. She's the associate chief librarian of the Schomburg Center. She said that that would be ridiculous because people relied on the accuracy of the Green Book. I mean, Hugo Green's reputation was on the line. The Green Book's reputation would be on the line. Um, there is no documented history of any like false advertising um, or anything like that. So again, like it's just all very much from the perspective of the white imagination, which never <laughs> imagines anything good for Black people and always sees themselves as having to come in and, and save the day I do just want to mention that I hope people will look into the true story of the Green Books. The Green Books were a survival guide, and it is my hope that we we learn more about that as well. I think people now are seeing more about it because of Lovecraft Country that's out right now on, on HBO. And, you know, a big part of that history that people were learning about for the first time based on the show was also Sundown Towns, which was also something that the Green Books would cover that would let you know where it's not safe for Black people to be out of their homes or out of a residence after sundown. So there was just so much that's just really important and fascinating and still actually significant today where Black people are not safe after a certain hour in certain places. If you're telling Black stories or people who were real people, it's so important that we get that history correct. Sometimes our films and our TV shows are the only way that people will get understanding of these people who really lived. So I think it's very important for us to do our best as storytellers to tell a story that is true and that is accurate. There are many of fantastic filmmakers who have done that correctly. Um, you look at somebody like Ava DuVernay and When They See Us, which accurately told the story of the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five. It is possible to tell a true story and also be entertaining and also be captivating. You just have to be a talented enough filmmaker. And if you're not a talented enough filmmaker, then you need to get out of the way. Luckily, there are even more films and books being released that mention the Negro Motorist Green Book, whether directly or indirectly. 
like the film One Night in Miami, releasing December 2020, that chronicles Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown's fictional night at a Green Book location you might recognize, the Hampton House. And our very own One of the Good Ones pays tribute to the Negro Motorist Green Book too. We knew that we wanted to discuss racial inequality in the United States, but you can't have that discussion without going back in time because so much of what we're going through today is based on the past. Exactly. And the more research we did, the more we were convinced the Negro Motors Green Book would anchor the story and help us discuss the past while relating to the modern day. We learned so much about the Green Book that it led to this very podcast you've just listened to. There's a lot we aren't taught about Black history. While one of the good ones is fiction, we hope it'll encourage readers to do a bit of their own research and see what they find. That's it. You have reached the end of the One of the Good Ones Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you've learned just as much as we have. And if you want to learn more about One of the Good Ones, which publishes on January 5th, 2021, or the Negro Motorist Green Book, be sure to visit our show notes for links. And don't forget to follow us on social media, at Mayika Mulit and at Maritza Mulit. Bye. Bye. Bye.